It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. We, we are going to be the kids that you read about in textbooks. Not because we are going to be another statistic about mass shootings in America, but because, just as David said, we are going to be the last mass shooting. The people in the government who were voted into power are lying to us. Politicians who sit in their gilded house and senate seats funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this. We call BS. that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence. We call BS that us kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS. If you agree, register to vote. Contact your local congresspeople. Give them a piece of your mind. I'm Pete Mazzoni. Last Saturday, I took my daughter and her best friend out to coffee. As we sat and conversations meandered from one topic to the next, I was struck suddenly by what the girls were discussing. They were sharing stories on how they were being prepared for an active shooter attack. Now, when I was young, and this will definitely date me, our greatest existential fear was a nuclear attack. The ominously named film, The Day After, was screened for us, but only with parental permission. We watched in abject horror at the potential devastation such an attack would cause, but as we all know, it never happened. The Soviet Union fell, and the threat seemed to dissipate. But this conversation in this moment was altogether different and far more frightening. The Parkland shooting and the many before it were not global abstractions. The kids bantered back and forth with unnerving details like where they were told to hide, how to barricade the doors, Which teacher said what about how to escape, and even one educator telling the kids, do whatever you have to do to stay alive? It was then that I learned about Alice. Alert, lock down, provide real-time information, counter, and evacuate the area. They discussed this acronym with a passive objectivity. There was no particular anxiety in their voices. It was just a matter of fact. But for me as a parent, I was experiencing a combination of depression, fear, anxiety, and anger. Depression, and that it has come to this. That in this great country, our kids must drill regularly as if we were at the epicenter of some war-torn nation. Fear that while one may argue statistical improbability of such an attack, it is still eminently plausible. Anxiety, and that there is not much I as a parent can do. And anger at the fact that this is what we have allowed to happen. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss this topic. I have with me today... Joe Podasik and Chris Carroll from the Chambersburg Area School District. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. If I could ask to start with you, Dr. Podasik, to kind of introduce yourselves, give a little background, and then we'll move to you, Chris. Thank you. We uh, superintendent of a, a 10,000 student school in uh, a community with 60,000 residents. Uh, we take safety very serious in our community. We have for many years. It's a situation where we don't publicize it. We have to now start coming out because our parents and the public are concerned what we're doing and this is kind of like our coming out party. Chris, I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about all the initiatives that you have uh, initiated in the last five years that we really haven't gone public with. Yes, my name's Chris Carroll. I'm the Assistant Superintendent for Pupil Services in the Chambersburg School District. 
Um, I arrived five years ago, and in 2014, we adopted what's called an all-hazards manual. It's a comprehensive approach to safety planning and preparation. Uh, it was board approved in 2014. Uh, that is actually our manual that we use under any emergency situation. I also developed a safety committee, which is comprised of administration, uh, school board members, and this committee has met regularly for the past several years. Most recently, we have adopted the ALICE model, which is a model for active shooter training. 96% of our staff thus far has been trained in the ALICE model, and we are very proud of that number. We are a, an ALICE certified school district, meaning we have met all the requirements to become ALICE certified. We also are working on structural things within the district. We've had a state police audit conducted, and from that point on, we have made structural changes throughout the district to make things safer and to follow the state police guidelines. Uh, we also uh, have worked on the vestibules, meaning the entrances to each school, making sure that they're safe, making sure we have the technology within the district, and currently, we are going to work on some new initiatives, which in about a week or two, we will be having our next safety committee meeting, and we are developing more initiatives. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I would like to uh, add that the safety committee is very active, and we uh, always look for input in that committee. One of the offgrowths of that committee has been that our district has uh, implemented its own police department. And that happened because we were trying to get more assistance from the state police and our township schools and our borough police, who are very cooperative. However, we were requesting full-time officers from them that we'd pay for. And in both cases, it was we were not able to work that out. So we formed our own uh, police force, and we copied it off in a neighboring district, or excuse me, a district our size, Altoona, Pennsylvania. So we have three, three full-time officers and... Uh, they are security, but they're also to be visible in the schools, friendly to the children. Uh, as Chris said, we've been proactive in our employee training with all of our uh, activities. I will say that the state law requires us to have a fire alarm or a fire drill done once a month and once a year a safety drill. And realistically, legislative-wise, it should be the other way around. I mean, you know, if we were looking at mandates. However, we, as an outgrowth of our safety committee, will start doing more drills uh, instead of one annually. What we, we have in the past, and we'll be doing two or three a year. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, also, as far as our police department is concerned, we are very fortunate to have our own armed officers. Um, I believe that their uh, presence, as well as their influence within our school district, has been a very, very healthy thing. Uh, for not only the faculty and staff, but our students as well. Um, as far as uh, safety training, our, our students were very enthusiastic about the ALICE training drills. I had the opportunity to go to a few of the elementary schools and just to watch the children, and they were so challenged by the different um, scenarios that we would put forward. They were challenged, you know, in how they were going to react to the so-called intruder. Um, I wasn't sure at first, you know, you, you never know how children are going to react. And, and it is a sad thing that we've come down to this, but um, I was very, very enthused to see everyone participating in that fashion. 
Can I ask about this specific Alice training and the scenarios that you develop? Can you give us some information on what that sounds like, what the kids are, you're telling the kids and how it plays out? Well, what we do is we will develop a different scenario. I'll give you an example. Uh, We may say that there's an active shooter in, in the west end of the building. So then the students at the east end have to react. What are they going to do? Nine chances out of 10, they're probably going to flee or they're going to exit the building. If they're in the west end of the building, they're going to barricade. There are barricade doors. They're going to close in. Uh, We give them decision-making skills rather than the way we used to do it. Years ago, during a lockdown, you would tell the students to go into an area of the classroom and lay in that area. Yeah, and we now like know sitting ducks. Right, the Alice training. I I went through it and I read the, the the most frightening part was the ineffectiveness of lockdown. And the example they gave was the Virginia Tech shooter, who had remarkable success because of the lockdown mentality. So, in terms of decision making, you, you bring that up. What kind of decision making are, are you pressing them to be involved in? Well, any adult is trained or student is trained. We want them to know that there are many scenarios that they may be faced with, and there are many decisions that they need to be, they need to make in order to save lives. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is, if you look at a scenario, any of those scenarios that's happened in a school shooting in the past, it takes three to four minutes before the police arrive. Right. So between that three and four minutes is our most critical time to try to save lives and to to slow down that shooter. Uh, they've also done a lot of research on shooters and their their accuracy for shooting. They're not very accurate. That's why you know if you t- if you teach students to, sh- to throw something at a shooter, they're they're not accurate to begin with. They're going to be a lot less accurate, mm-hmm. or they're going to get frustrated and go to the next room. Hopefully, the next room might be barricaded. But instead of you know years ago, we would say, "Here's what you do. It's exactly what you do." Now we're teaching the faculty, the staff, and the students to be good decision makers based on the scenario at hand. Now, how many years ago are we talking about when lockdown was the the modus operandi? I mean, how new is this? I would say this is rather new within within the last few years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is a new a new tactic because many people have studied these shootings and man, many people ha- have looked at you know, what did we do well? What do we need to do differently? What we need to do is slow down the shooter until law enforcement gets there. Mm-hmm. And it saves lives uh, from a statistical standpoint. If you, if you look at the statistics on the decisions that people made and the lives that were lost, this new approach, you're going to lose less lives. Let's go back to, uh, you mentioned you have your own police force now. Um, and I'm not asking you to give away anything that you don't feel like sharing with the public necessarily, but how are they distributed? How are they allocated? How is that used? Well, as you know, the Chambersburg School District is about 250 square miles. It's a very large area, very large area. Uh, They work with the borough police as well as the Pennsylvania State Police. Uh, They they basically uh, go to areas where they're called. If there's an emergency, you know, a parent, problem, any kind of emergency in a building, we really focus a lot of our efforts on the secondary buildings, mainly caches. Um, it, it, is, it is hard to, to, you know, take three gentlemen and push them across 250 square right. miles. They lead all investigations. Anything that warrants an investigation by a police officer, they lead. And then they uh, coordinate with state 
So in other words, let's say a situation has gone live. Uh, they will right away reach out to state or local law enforcement. Based, well, based on the location of the incident, if it's township or if it's borough, township, they would uh, contact the Pennsylvania State Police, borough, the borough police. Okay, okay. So let's talk about Florida. Uh, before we started the podcast, uh, can I call you Joe? Yes. You were discussing a very interesting uh, program out of Israel. Could you go into a little detail about that? Whenever you have a, a, a frightening situation like they've had, there's, there's going to be a lot of trauma that's created throughout the community, and of course, in our case, the nation. But the, uh, Israel has trauma teams that uh, work throughout their country, and they're really just created for their people, and they do outreach with them. So the uh, community brought in their, the trauma teams from Israel who are immersed in the communities, as, in the community as well as in the school district and with the children, and, uh, you know, debriefing, the counseling, uh, and they're just non-emotional, but they get to the heart of the subject and get people to talk things out. And it's been a, I think it's a wonderful concept that I believe out of every tragedy, you got to take some lessons. And this is one I believe is going to be a lesson for the nation. Mm -hmm. And Israel does a great job. And I have to say this, we just had children come back from Israel on a student exchange program with our, one of our teachers. And when I asked them this week, what was the biggest surprise? And they were surprised how safe they were in Israel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to hear that from a student that lives and goes in our community and says that. So Israel's seen a few things or two. So, so that's kind of a, a situation. I mean, we try to teach our children to see something, say something. That's kind of the prevention part of this whole deal. And, you know, you have to rely on, you know, the children. We, we are teaching the children what is reporting versus snitching. And that's a big issue with people because, you know, you, you know, reporting is, you know, you have facts and, you know, it's going to save people's lives and it's important. And we want to make sure they do that. And we believe we've in, in, immersed that in our community through a lot of these processes that's helped us to hopefully prevent any kind of an issue. So uh, we, we, aren't, we aren't without issues. We two thirds of what we're doing, we think is very good. One third, the re research says isn't. And that is when we take the uh when, we, when we're using alternative programs and punitive measures for people who, whether bring weapons to school or make threats, and there's lots of those, believe it or not. You talk about the police force, one full-time officer does nothing but monitor and work with threats, investigate threats. I mean, it's, it, that's all they can get done in a, in right, a day. Right, right. So let's, let's, let me circle back. I'll, go ahead. I'm sorry. One thing I wanted to, to discuss is we do use a tool that is used by the FBI, it's called a threat assessment. All our school psychologists have been trained on using this threat assessment so that we, when we have a student that is, you know, demonstrating different behaviors or appears to be a threat, the school psychologist will conduct a threat assessment. Mm -hmm. And this, this tool is from the FBI. All school psychologists were trained from Don, uh, Don Smith from the Office of Safe Schools years ago in 2014, and we use this as a monitor. Okay, that kind of can lead us into these red flag laws that are being talked about in various states. Um, some of these red flag provisions uh, can mean the removal of a gun from an individual. Others can mean they can give the police uh, reason to take action. Um, what are your feelings on these red flag laws? And as a follow-up question, 
and this is a big one, is monitoring social media. Now, I know this is, I, I, I thought the number was closer to 8,000 or 9,000 kids, but at 10,000 children. Now, not all of them are on social media, but a good portion of them are. What steps can you possibly take to kind of sort out these threats that you were talking about, you know, that are real versus just so much, you know, talk? Well, we do monitor them regularly. We have our own social media. We have communities, groups that have social media. And then we have children who are in the student leaders who will keep us informed. And uh, it's not unusual for a lot of this to happen in the off hours, evenings and weekends. And the borough police and the state police have been very active also and, and been in touch with us on cases that have happened. So we, we look at triggers, anything that's a, a direct threat. Uh, when when they have a well-thought-out plan and it's more than just a, a haphazard uh, comment, right. we take it serious. Now, the comments, we take serious when we see them on site. Anybody that sees and hears anything, we follow through with everything. But the social media part, you look you look more for, of course, a threat, but a more detailed and... Uh, our police and our students and everyone have been trained to look at that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure we've missed any, but we do follow up on anything that we feel is threatening. Mm-hmm. So within the student community, um, the, I think the kids get it at this point. Do you feel like you have a, a good line of information through the student body, uh, kind of revealing potential threats? Like the, the young man down in Florida, he couldn't have thrown up more red flags and nothing seemed to happen. That you, so. That's a very good point. I will say this, uh, when we, we did a lot of work with our children and our staff in the last two weeks after, I mean, in detail, we wanted to find out exactly what they're thinking, what's going on, et cetera. And uh, our students, majority of them feel safe. They, in, in our secondary schools, they don't have any problem talking to an adult. They see something, they say something, and we find that to be true. There is a little bit, we're a little concerned in our elementary schools. When I talk to the children, we talk to the children, they have no problem talking to the bus driver about anything but when they get out of the school and they're in the school and they're in the hallway and if they're not near their teacher some of these little guys are a little and we're concerned about that so we have some work to do there and we know that but we will get on that and uh you know we once we we just finished all these i just assembled all the data that we got from the staff the students and put it into three categories people trainings and facilities the next step is to take that summary and give it to our uh, safety committee so that they can make some recommendations. But in general, uh, many students feel we should do more locker searches uh, at all levels. Uh, some of them and, and many of them don't want backpacks. The parents in general that we've got, and we judge our parent response by the calls we get in, of concern. But majority of parents would like to see metal detectors or some form of metal detector and no backpacks. Uh, the staff is more concerned about our dismissals and arrivals because what happens is, and that's when a lot of these happen, and people, you know, we have all these mechanisms to keep the building safe and you have to buzz in, you got to show your ID, et cetera. But the dismissal, that's kind of like, well, wait a minute, we're just getting off the bus, we're going yeah, in they're here. vulnerable. Exactly. And then what makes it one step more vulnerable in our, our secondary schools in Chambersburg is the fact that they get off, uh, the children come to school at a different schedule than our teachers. So we put them in large holding areas for a period of 15 to 20 minutes. And our children came to us and said, this ought to be changed, and so did staff. So, you know, there might be 500 children being supervised by less than a handful of adults. So, And they feel that we need to look at that differently than we are. 
Okay, great. So getting back to uh, community feedback, what are you hearing from parents and the community in general? What are they saying? What are the conversations? Uh, one of the things that I would say is they want to see more. First of all, parents say we don't communicate with them enough. I hear that from everybody. And uh, we're not sure what that means, but we try to do as much as we can with our social media and we're updating all the time. But that's one of the things they say. So we are sensitive to that and need to look at that. Uh, all our staff and everyone wants to see more visibility with our police officers. So today we started a, th a fourth person who's full-time with our district or at this point every day working as a retired, as, excuse me, as a security guard. Okay. And we probably need to do more of that. We have one full-time of the police department stationed at Cassius, and then they're, they're all there for lunch. And our point is we want to have one full-time officer in our big buildings all the time and probably two at Cassius. Okay. So I think parents, we're, we're hearing they want that. They do want to see metal detectors, but I think when you really look at that whole concept, the initial cost of them is not. The, the real cost of metal detectors is the whole personnel part, running them. And schools that have metal detectors still have lots of problems. And, uh, you know, we can tell you that Franklin Regional had a student who stabbed everyone, uh, 12 or 20 people. They had metal detectors for 10 years before that. Mm -hmm. So It's so, not as effective as it sounds. Sounds like correct. a feel-good measure. Correct. Rather than a functional measure. Yes. So let me get into one of the more thornier issues. Um, the Florida House Legislature in their school protection bill is looking at directing $67 million to a school marshal program, effectively arming teachers. Um, they would go through a mental health screening, firearm safety, firearm precision, 132 hours of training, background and drug test. Is this something that the district is looking at? I believe no. At this point in time, we are not because we have our own armed officers. Uh, to be, be honest with you, when we started our police department, that was a question whether they're going to be armed or not. And uh, at this point, we aren't looking at that. Mm. Okay. Uh, I mean, we certainly if the state came up with some money to do, we could use more funds. Uh, I just was in contact with Senator Rich Alway's office yesterday, and uh, Senator Eichelberger and both of them want to have more discussion on student safe, safety and what they can do. And realistically, what they can do is provide us with funds so we can do more training and have more security officers. I think it's a human issue. The real issue we have, and we all would agree with this, is when you do these threat assessments, uh, and there's usually about 20% of them that need further evaluation. If you look in our state and really our area, there is nowhere to get help for these folks. We have, we have parents with means who come to us begging us to get their child help, psychological, whatever, and the resources are, they're just not there. So going back to, let's talk about Harrisburg. Uh, is there movement in the state capitol to providing money, to providing resources? Are there any bills pending? Are they taking action? I would say at this time, no. I think I hear, I mean, I say, I use two examples, and I talked to Rob Kaufman this week. He was one of our buildings. We had brief discussion, but there's not nothing that I know that's concrete. Interesting. So when you talk to parents um, and to our listeners, it sounds like that's a call to action. Um, you need to reach out to Harrisburg, and something needs to be done because, as you've laid out here, resources are the issue. Yeah. So in terms of you were you brought up, let's call it behavioral mental health issues. Um, how do you address these things? I know you have your school psychologist. Um, but how are you kind of addressing this? 
Well, we have many students that come through my office. I hold what's called administrative reviews, and we have many students that are in need of psychiatric services, and based on the number of uh, psychiatrists that are located in Franklin County, they cannot get even an appointment for months, months on end. We, we do uh, have a psychiatrist that we use when we tell a parent, listen, we'd like your, your son or daughter to have a psychiatric, then we pay for that psychiatrist. The problem in this community is the number of psychiatrists. There are not enough psychiatrists or mental health services for the number that are in need. What kind of increase would have to happen to satisfy the need? I mean, we're talking about 100 additional providers, 10, 50. I mean, how far off of this are we? Because, uh, frankly, that's kind of frightening to me. Well, for whatever reason, um, I've worked in different counties uh, coming from Cumberland County versus Franklin County. Cumberland County, probably they probably have five times, six times more the number of those types of services than Franklin do. It is disturbing because I also work with alternative education as well as special education, and we have so many students that are in in such need, but the parents cannot find the resources in this county. I want to add one zinger to this, and that's this. When I talk to our legislators, uh, almost all the time they tell me they get 10 calls, they get between 10 times more calls from the senior citizens than they do from anybody concerned about education. So what's that tell you? They, they all tell me that. That's a concern. Yeah. If we want our, you know, resources for our children, we've got to get that. There has to be a call to action, like you say. And, you know, let's get, you know, when I call them and they say, well, we got one call on that, but we got 100 from the senior centers and centers. I mean, that's what that's who they're listening to. Also, they only tell me that. Yeah. Also, if you take a look at the amount of money that uh, the state is allotting for each area of education, You'll look at the larger areas, and when you look at anything that has to do with safety and security, it's a very low-budgeted number. Well, that's got to change. I mean, it's hard to believe that I'm hearing that, despite what we just witnessed down in Florida, that they're not moving on making that money. Does the school district have additional money to finance these new uh, safety measures? Uh, Where's that coming from, or how's that work? Safety is our number one allocation for resources. So I don't think safety has a value, and this district has always looked at it that way. So whatever it takes, and it's not unusual for us to spend between a half a million and a million dollars every year mm-hmm. on safety in our district, whether it be facilities, and we'll have our facilities upgraded that we think the state of the art. We follow the state police audit, which is detailed when it comes to putting 3M gla- screening on windows and you know big planters in front of the entrances. Uh, doors that are locked and can't so we spend a lot of time i want to use an example to give you you asked about the money for what kind of resource do we need riu handles three counties and 26 school districts they don't have a psychiatrist they used to have one and they got rid of the psychiatrist and i said what's the problem they said we don't have the resources for a psychiatrist so it's important we can't even if we wanted a bilingual psychiatrist the wait time is how long we have to actually use a bilingual psychiatrist out of Lancaster. And the wait time is months. And are they covering a large area of the Lancaster School District? Absolutely. So they're booked up anyway. They're booked oh, up. Oh, my. It's eight months. I mean, eight months is what we had to wait the last time to get a psychiatrist service for bilingual. 
Yes, and we have a large number of students, Hispanic students, coming into our school, school yeah, district. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our numbers have tripled. And there are many, there's, there's a very long wait line for these students to get evaluated. Well, this is all unnerving. Um, at what level would you have to be staffed with these behavioral health services? I mean, how far off the mark are we as a school district in terms of those needs? Well, I'll say Keystone has really provided some great partnerships with our school district. Currently, I know they are bringing uh, several psychiatrists on board, I think three psychiatrists within the next year. They're also bringing more mental health services to the community. Okay, so there's stuff in the works. Yes, Keystone has been actively working on that. That's good to hear. Um, I want to address another uh, program, the SAP program, Student Assistance Program. Um, I was unfamiliar with that. Uh, Would you care to kind of speak at length on what that is and its efficacy? Student Assistance Program is a program that helps students that are struggling, maybe from a mental health standpoint, a drug and alcohol standpoint, any kind of uh, behavioral you know, difficulties. It's a team of teachers uh, that team up with a parent, as parents as well as a student, to provide outside uh, resources to help that student. Now, is this a volunteer-based program? It's a program that the school district pays for through healthy communities, but the parent must sign off on in order to get those resources. Okay. And do you find that it's effective? I believe it's effective when the student wants to, wants to help, yes. Mm-hmm. But many students that, you know, are referred to SAP don't want the help or now, the parents won't sign off on now it. Now, is this a kind of a, a stigmatizing thing? Do other students know they're in SAP? I mean, is there kind of a... No, it's a confidential process. Okay. Okay. So I think what we're kind of talking about, and this is my belief, is this is really a root cause issue that, you know, we can play about at the fringes, but ultimately it's getting to these people before things explode yes, or go south. So what are your thoughts on addressing root causes? I mean, are you, do you, you know the students who are problematic and are you unable to intervene or how does it work? Well, we, we do know, and, uh, you know, we can say we have counseling services. We have a, a, a very robust counseling department, but clearly we don't have any uh, measurable home and school accountability. What I mean by that for the district is districts our size and districts near us have many home and school visitors, and it starts there. And that's when you know what's going on. You get an idea. You have a child that's identified and then you work there. We have some teachers that do it on their own or some counselors, but we don't have a systemic. We haven't spent the resources on that. Can I stop you just for a second? Can you explain a little more in detail what home and school visitor means? Right. A lot of issues start at home. Sure. And the idea is if you can if you can understand the home life, you can help the child in the school and make them be more successful in school. We address it for through attendance here. And the attendance in our community is basically predicated on families. And so we go out whenever, because the law says you got to, if you miss 10 days, you're going to get fined. So that's how we do it. But we can address the root cause of all issues can be done long before 10 days. And we would know that from the staff. But, but most school districts that have an urban component like we have, instead of having elementary counselors who stay in the school most of the time, our model is predicated on the classroom and in the school based. A lot of models that are urban 
the counselors in the elementary division are home and school based. So they, they work in a community and they may be in a school a portion of their time, half to a third, but two thirds are in the community working with the parents, et cetera. Our counselors spend 80% of their time in the schools and 20% in the community. And we need to reverse that. Are you working towards that goal? Well, I will say we started a new program for students that have been through severe trauma. It's an elementary-based program, and we have one staff member, and this is her role. She works between the home and the school, and I've seen a great deal of success in this model. But that's, that's one of our elementary models. How are they identified, these students? Normally, uh, these students exhibit problematic behaviors. Okay. Like severe behaviors okay. at, at a very early age. And then as you get to know the student as well as the family, you start to identify what the early trauma was and how that's inhibiting them from learning. So then we try to work on the behaviors uh, to ensure that they're able to learn and possibly return to the regular education environment. Do you find that the families are more than willing to accept this help or do you feel there's pushback or because I feel like you know you try and tell a parent they're not parenting correctly you just stepped on a landmine. Well unfortunately a lot of these students don't live with their parents. Parents are either incarcerated they may be living with an uncle an aunt maybe a grandparent Mm -hmm. so it, it, it's an unfortunate set of circumstances for these students when they leave the school building every day. Do you feel that there's some other way to reach them? I mean, is there anything else the school district can do as far as these particular kids where the home life is clearly fractured? And I think we all agree that if the home life is solid, most other things coming out of it will also be solid. Uh, conversely, if it's broken... We get other results. The shooter down in Florida, if you look into his history, I mean, his home life was constantly disrupted. So is there another method to reach those kids, or is it just stalemate and hope for the best? Well, we try to make it a smaller class size. Uh, The ratio of teachers to students, there are many teachers in the classroom, try to help these kids through each day Mm -hmm. from an emotional standpoint and hopefully get them through the academics they need to get through. There's not a lot we can do about their home circumstances, but there's a lot we can do when they reach our doors in the morning. It used to be when you would have an alternative child and they'd be put in an outside placement and they'd be, they were forgot about. Well, we have a whole parallel system, K to 12 now, of alternative school that are in our schools. And we, we work with them. Because if you look at some of the indicators, for one is home life, but the discipline. Clearly in the last five years within our district, are most of our discipline in our students issues, et cetera, are all in kindergarten, first grade. For our whole district, 10,000 children, if you add everything up, that doesn't equal what the kindergarten, first grade discipline issues are. That's staggering. Right. And we never, we just implemented a K-2 alternative program several years ago. And we started with one classroom. We now have three. And that's an intensive classroom that has eight children and three adults in it. And one of them is a counselor. And they actually have a second classroom for the children to go outside and de-escalate. So this sounds like an area that needs, I mean, as going to root causes, as we were discussing, I think we, you've just laid bare the root cause. That at that very young age, the wiring's going wrong. And we need to get in there and kind of do what we can. So would that be a place you would want to really push resources? Well, 
one of Joe's main um, goals, I believe, since he's been in our district, is to try to increase the number of preschool classes, get kids to school earlier, you know, get kids out of the home earlier, and hopefully, you know, get them where they need need to be behaviorally and academically. And I think we've done a good job of that in the district. This year, we had seven classrooms, uh, Head Start and pre-K classrooms, where students can come to school at an earlier age. Now, how early? How early are we talking? Four-year-olds. We 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 have all-day five-year-old, which is our traditional kindergarten. We really need a, an all-day four-year-old program, which is a, because right now we're talking to four-year-olds. Some of the Head Start programs have three and a half-year-olds in it, but we need the four-year-olds out of the community, out of their homes, and into our schools a year early. So, is that sounds like the the sweet spot? Yes, if you can get them around age four. Yes, we can do a course and correction. My dream's always been to take the resources that you're spending on a high school senior, who basically is, you know, there's a lot of thoughts about that, but and put that into the, into the four-year-old program and start a whole four-year-old program. We need, we would need 32 teachers is about what you need for a class in this district that would handle between seven to fifteen and eight hundred children, but that's needed. And remember, the brain develops half of its cells by the age of seven, so you're you're getting a lot of things right. happening right there quicker. So, what is the plausibility of that happening? Well, I was working. I've been working on it for a long time, and I, I can tell you that it's going to be a long process. And I only say that is when you look at the resources that folks are allocated in this state. We have teachers who we hire from Maryland who work in our schools, love our children, but when they come in kindergarten, first grade, they tell us that we have children who are. Basically, they can they they know their numbers. They can write a uh, paragraph, and there's other children who aren't potty trained. Right. But when they came from Maryland, universal preschool, none of that. They could get right to the top. And so, when they're done with kindergarten in Maryland, a child is basically a year ahead of our children, uh, of all of our children, because we don't have that universal preschool that can mm-hmm. sort of holds us all back. Now, our teachers work very hard, and uh, you go in our kindergarten classrooms. And, I, and I'm just in there today looking at, you know, we expect the children to be able to write between one and two paragraphs when they get out of kindergarten and know all their numbers and, and, and to 100 and, and know every color and, you know, and be able to converse independently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a, it's a struggle. Well, it sounds like Pennsylvania needs to step up. Um, that, that this is not an encouraging uh, bit of information. With the kids that they don't get caught, they they don't don't get service they need in an early age. Does the school district have a way of kind of keeping an eye on them? Is that possible? Watching their trajectory. I will say I've worked in several school school districts, uh, one in Maryland and several across the state of Pennsylvania. And the Chambersburg School District, I believe, does an excellent job in offering alternative type settings for students with different needs. Mm-hmm. We really do. We have we have many. Uh, classrooms across the district that are designed to work with these types of students. We also have programs outside of the district that we spend a lot of money on uh, trying to provide strong interventions to get kids back on track and back into the regular classroom atmosphere. Um, But I will say over the past three years, we've seen a significant increase in the types of students coming into our school district from, from other states from other places that have significant needs. Is this a poverty issue? 
Yes, I would say correct. We we have two kinds of poverty in our district. We have uh, urban poverty and we have rural poverty, and they have to be help, dealt with differently. Uh, and we are still in the model of dealing with the urban poverty, or excuse me, the rural poverty, and we haven't really accepted the fact that the urban poverty is totally different and takes a lot more resources at a concentrated time and intensive intensive situation. Would that be a way of describing that? How Very are they different? How, how are they different? The, you know, how are the approaches different to kind of addressing in, in the context of this conversation of, you know, a potential red flag, let's say? Well, on any given day, you, you really don't know who's going to register in the district. I may have a student from Puerto Rico that has an IEP and understands no English. Can I... Interrupt you. What's an IEP? Individualized Education Program. That's okay. special education services. All right. Thank you. So that's that's a that's one scenario. You may have a student come from Brooklyn, New York, with a heavy duty discipline record mm-hmm. that is coming into caches. Mm-hmm. You may have a student from Littlestown, Pennsylvania, come in. I mean, we just have such diversity coming through our doors every day. And our challenge is to meet that student's needs, educate that student, and have that student be successful. Sometimes that's a challenge for us. So is there ongoing training for staff to adapt to this? Because, you know, a kid coming out of a neighborhood in Brooklyn is in a far different place than, you know, the kid from Puerto Rico or the kid from Fayetteville. So... How does your how do you keep the staff up to speed on kind of addressing these massive cultural differences? Uh, again, all in the context of you know this conversation and and potential threats and. Uh, hopefully, if you're going to work in Chambersburg, you're going to have to have a flexible way of thinking, because on any given day you're you're going to have these types of challenges, and you're going to have to find a way to make it work for the student and for the classroom. Mm-hmm. We, we basically have concentrated two things. One of the ways I'd answer that is we have concentrated on hiring the best staff. And that means that they have to come in trained already in many of these areas. And secondly, we have a series of uh, academic coaches who go into the classroom with young teachers that are just coming to our district and spend time in classroom management with them. How long does that go on? Uh, for usually the first year or two. So okay. and then that th- those that's the immersion type of uh, professional development that we do. Now, do with. they hit benchmarks that okay they've hit this benchmark we can you know move on or is it just after the end of that year that's it you know we hope you've got it or we reevaluate the, the staff with with the principals in the building every year and if a staff needs a second year or, or a staff member a third year of intensive help they get that okay okay great. Um, I think we've kind of covered the questions we want. If there's anything further you'd like to add to the conversation, uh, the floor is yours. Um, I guess I would say if there's a call to action you want to get out to the community, uh, go ahead and do that now. I think for the listeners, I've heard a number of calls to action. Um, Sounds like we need to pick up the phone and call our representatives and say this is unacceptable. Um, you're, You're hamstringing the school district when they need the community needs your help more than um, any other time. So again, if if anything you want to add to the conversation, feel free. I would add that uh, we do have a hotline, but the students tell me it's hard to find. So it is on our website, and I promise that we will have the hotline available, much more accessible in the next several weeks where everyone knows what that number is. 
I think that's one of the number one easiest things we can do to get this. So we have to get a hotline so people know what it is. Our students are telling us they don't even know what the number is or how to access it. Mm -hmm. So that's my point. I would encourage uh, the community to continue to stay engaged and not only with lawmakers, but with the school district. If they hear of anything, please report anything, even if they find that it's something small. Because nine chances out of 10, that's where we've gotten our information Mm -hmm. from others, whether it was a student, a parent. So continue, you know, to be diligent about conversations, about what you're hearing and seeing. And just remember that we're all in this together. Right, right. Wonderful. Um, One more quick thing. You mentioned the the parents felt there was a lack of communication of their social media channels you want to put out right now that they can access your Facebook page or we do have a Facebook page. I, I, I know we have, you know, the website, uh, Brian Miller is our PR and does all our, our news or ease newsletter. We send that out. So that's an area that, uh, Tammy Stoffer and he, he do. And I think they're the ones that we need to be, that need to be contacted for that. Okay. Uh, I will say that we have a lot of neighbors, all the neighbors around our facilities. And there's a lot of them. I deal with the ones around caches are very helpful. And I'm talking about the standard citizen who, will call and say, I saw this, or, you know, most people think they call to complain. That's not true. They do give us a lot of tips. Yeah, and that, I think that's the, the lesson of Florida right now is you need to speak up. Yes. If something doesn't look right, we need to speak up. So, well, listen, I want to thank you both very much for coming here to talk about this important issue, and I would love to have you back at some point to see if things have progressed, hopefully, sure. in terms of solving the problem. So, again, thank you very much. And uh, we'll be talking soon. I'm Pete Mazzoni, and before we sign off, let's have a quick check-in with our producer, Jeremy Kate. What do you have for us today, Jeremy? Yeah, thanks, Pete. Just a couple of things. In case you're hearing this before Saturday, March 10th, the Franklin County Coalition for Progress has a new program that they're kicking off this weekend called Common Grounds. It's to be held at the Coyle Library the second Saturday of each month from 10 a.m. until noon and this Saturday you can join them for Running for Office 101. They'll have a speaker that can tell you just how to get yourself on the ballot here in Franklin County. So if that's something you've ever thought about, check it out. Again, that's this Saturday, March 10th on the top level of the beautiful, newly renovated Coil Free Library in downtown Chambersburg. More information on that and future second Saturdays can be found online at fccforprogress.org. That website just launched this week, and you can also find the Progress Pods page there. Progresspod.org also gets you to the site, so check it out when you have some time. We plan to post links to all of our podcasts there, as well as any links that we find relevant to the issues we're covering here on the show. And that is all I have for us. Again, thanks so much for joining us on the Progress Pod. (laughs) 